Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and you can find me on Twitter at at Townsend Joel C. Always happy to hear your ideas for future episodes, any feedback you have, any areas for improvement. Today I want to talk about the case of Stefan Nistrom. His mother emigrated to Australia in 1950, but Stefan was born in 1973 when his mother took a return visit to Sweden to see some relatives. He returned to Australia when he was 27 days old. He never got Australian citizenship. He didn't realise he hadn't got Australian citizenship, but he never took the steps he needed to obtain it. His parents never undertook that for him, nor did the state authorities who had him in out-of-home care at one point. Over the course of his life, Stefan Nistrom accumulated a substantial and serious criminal record. And that put him in a position where the Minister for Immigration was entitled to exercise visa cancellation powers. These are the character cancellation powers under Section 501 of the Migration Act. And in 2004, Stefan Nidstrom's visa was cancelled. Despite his challenge to that cancellation, he was ultimately removed and returned to Sweden. It's a case which shows how impactful that visa cancellation power can be and that continues to be a very topical issue in Australian immigration law. I spoke to Stuart Webb who previously worked at Victoria Legal Aid with me at one point in fact uh, but now is the president of the Law Institute of Victoria and he began by giving me a background to how he came into the case. a third-year lawyer at Legal Aid, having recently completed my articles um, and uh, working in the human rights and civil law service at Legal Aid. We were referred this matter um, by Marisa Altman of Lethbridge Lloyds, who had assisted um, Stefan Nistrom with his criminal law matters. And he was an old client of hers. She wasn't actually assisting him with anything at that time. Um, But he received a a notice in about July, August 2004 that his right to remain in Australia had been cancelled, that the minister, Amanda Vanstone, had decided to cancel his visa because of the character provisions of the Migration Act. And um, Marita sort of was... Going around, I think she spoke to someone at um, uh, Flemington Kensington Legal Centre, um, and they said, "Oh, we don't do that kind of work back then." Uh, and so it was put into a, a phone call into Victoria Legal Aid, and for some, I can't recall why, but I was the one who received it and picked it up and picked up the file. I had an interest in the criminal cancellation area. Um, you know, I, I saw it as a potentially challenging um, area of law. Um, given the significant ramifications of that um, jurisdiction. Uh, So we picked that case up um, to run 
uh, in late 2004. Stefan Stefan is a really interesting person. Uh, he, as I said, a bit of his background. His mother was Swedish, so Finnish, naturalised Swedish. His father was Swedish. They came out to Australia in 1966. His sister was born in Australia, so she was an Australian citizen. His mother went back to Sweden for a holiday in about mid-2000 and uh, 1973. And so she was there from June and she was going to go back to Australia, but she was already very pregnant. And so she decided, I don't think we're going to get back to Sweden anytime. So I will continue my, my holiday in Sweden so the family can meet Stefan and then I'm going back. He came back, so he was eventually born on the 31st of December 1973, and he came to Australia uh, when he was 27 days old. He never left Australia since. If he had left Australia, if he had sought to leave Australia, he would have had to have gone and applied for an Australian passport. He would have realised he was not an Australian citizen. He never knew that he was not an Australian citizen until a letter from the minister came telling him he was his right to stay in Australia had been cancelled. He was a troubled individual. Um, his parents divorced when he was five. He went into care. He was abused. He became an abuser. Um, again, not an uncommon experience around that time. Uh, he was convicted of serious criminal matters on two occasions. Um, and so he certainly met the, the cancellation criteria. Um, but he had, for all extensive purposes, he actually reformed. So when I met him, he was working as a mechanic. He had stopped drinking. Um, he, he never, drugs were never a big thing in his circumstances, but alcohol was. He had stopped. He was actually going on the straight and narrow, and for the first time in his life, he was all the going places. And then this happened. And I remember when we... Um, when he was He was in... Uh, his, his visa was cancelled. We got a bridging visa, I think, um, for a very short time. No, sorry, he was detained after the, the first court decision uh, and then he was dis discharged. He was uh, released when we won at the full federal court. He was in the community for another year and a bit. Um, and then we had, obviously, the decision of the full court, the, sorry, the high court, which handed down in November 2006. Um, that was handed over in the registry in Melbourne. And I remember calling him and saying, unfortunately, we've lost, and that was the, you know, and there's no further place to go. And he went missing. He went missing. I recall that quite distinctly. Um, but then we, you know, told him that it was probably not a good idea. It was down somewhere, down Gippsland somewhere, that he needed to come forward because it was going to make things worse for him if he didn't. And he was eventually deported from Australia, never to return, as per the circumstances of the of the cancellation that was the first time you had a proceeding before the high court you were yeah. still you were quite a still a relatively I new was, practitioner I, I had been admitted <laughs> to practice in 2003 you know so march 2003 i'd been practicing here i was um heading off to the high court in mid 2006 uh you know and this is a vehicle that legal this is this is one of the things that legal aid provides practitioners and the opportunity to work in complex matters and build your experience and knowledge um, 
at such a young age for a barrister, for a, for a solicitor, um, and a, an amazing experience. So yeah, so there I was as a third year solicitor up to the high court. It's one of the things when I, when I talk to young lawyers um, in my role as the president of the Law Institute, and I say, you don't know where your law practice can take you. I was a third year solicitor, and here I was sitting in the front row, supporting my barristers in the High Court of Australia. That's not something that you get to do very often, and it shows you where a legal practice can take you. And in particular, as I said before, it's a place where legal aid can give you an opportunity to run cases of significant community interest and public interest. There were a number of sophisticated legal arguments run by Stefan Nistrom's legal team. And they really drew on the fact that there was a question about what visa or visas Stefan Nistrom held. As a result of amendments to Australian migration law, Stefan Nistrom was, on the 1st of September 1994, granted one or both of two visas by way of deeming. He was <coughs> deemed to have been granted one or both of an absorbed person's visa and a transitional permanent visa. And in 2004, when the minister cancelled his visa, the minister specified that she was cancelling his transitional permanent visa, didn't mention the absorbed person's visa. Stefan Nistrom's legal team argued that the minister had erred in cancelling the wrong visa, that Stefan Nistrom in fact held a, an absorbed person's visa and that the cancellation of the transitional permanent visa was incorrect, but that in any event, uh, if he in fact held both visas, uh, that the cancellation was in error. The minister said, well, there's a provision, section 501 capital F of the Migration Act, which says that if one visa is cancelled by the minister, all other visas are deemed to have been cancelled. But Stefan Istram argued that here, where the minister hadn't mentioned the fact of the absorbed person's visa, if Stefan Nistrom in fact held both visas, the failure to mention that fact, the failure to grapple with the fact of that visa's existence meant that the minister had failed to take, in, take into account something which the minister was required to take into account. And the consequence of that was that the cancellation was invalid. So those arguments failed and the Federal Magistrates Court but uh, Stephen Nistrom succeeded at the full court of the federal court. By majority, uh, the justices there accepted that there had been a failure to take into account the fact of his absorbed person's visa in um, making the decision to cancel. The minister appealed to the High Court and an additional argument was added. And that was, effectively related to the existence of the deportation power. So the Migration Act provides for deportation for people who have been in Australia for less than 10 years and have committed serious offences. And the argument made by Stefan Istrom was that it was an implicit restriction on the visa cancellation power that 
it couldn't be used on people like him who had been absorbed into the Australian community, had been here for far beyond the point at which that deportation power could be used. In effect, there was an argument that the deportation power was exclusively the power to be used in a case like his for a long-term resident. Those arguments were not successful at the High Court. The High Court accepted the arguments of the Minister for Immigration and upheld the cancellation of Stefan Istrum's visa. We had an amazing barrister. I mean, one of the best migration lawyers I've ever worked with in Lisa de Ferrari, now SC or QC. Uh, she uh, worked very closely and she identified that the, the cancellation, so the, the minister purported to cancel his transitional permanent visa, which is a, in the arcane way of things, happened in about uh, 1994 when the whole new visa system was created. Um, and we argued that actually, no, he didn't hold that visa. He held what was there. Uh, uh, not a visa uh, under the regulations, but a visa that was actually there in the statute, in the actual Act, Section 34, an absorbed person's visa. So we argued that the minister had cancelled the wrong visa. Um, and the argument before the uh, uh, Federal Magistrates Court, Maura Hartnett, um, FMC, Federal Magistrate, as it was then, uh, she uh, decided that he um, actually did hold that transitional permanent visa, did not hold the... Um, uh, the absorbed person visa, and said that the, the determination by the minister was 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 sound. We then obviously took that to appeal. That was in um, March 2005. She made that determination, and then we went to the federal um, uh, federal court, full court of the federal court, and that was pretty quickly turned around. I think we were back in front of the uh, that court. In uh, let's have a, have a think. We were there in July 2005. So if you think about what the court's like today. You know, the cancellation occurred in 2000, no, June 2004. We had a decision by March 2005, and we were before the uh, full court of the federal court by July 2005. Um, and we again argued that he held the absorbed person's visa, and that the minister should have actually taken that into account. At that point, the um, uh, representatives for the for the minister, who happened to be Stephen Donoghue, now Solicitor General of Australia, and Katie Miller, who acted for Australian Government Solicitor, they conceded that he held the absorbed persons visa, but that he also held the transitional permanent visa as well. So he held two visas at the same time. Um, and the... Uh, so, that we, so the argument actually altered from their perspective. Uh, we still argued that no absorbed person's visa um, existed. There's a particular provision of the Act, as it was then, Section 501 F3, which said that, well, if you cancelled one visa, all other visas were cancelled. And we argued that the problem, no, that's not appropriate because the minister should have turned her mind to considering the aspects of the absorbed person's visa because he was no longer an immigrant. He was an absorbed person in Australia by virtue of being born uh, overseas but living almost all of his life, apart from 27 days, in Australia. 
So we argued that before that, and in a two-to-one decision, the federal court, full court of the federal court, agreed with us, which was uh, a fantastic result. Um, and in some of the strongest language I've seen in a court decision, um, made a very strong finding that the minister should have taken that into account, even though there is the provision of F3, 501F3, um, uh, should certainly have taken into account the particular circumstances under the absorbed person's visa. And in the course of the decisions, not just the majority decision, but it, it, also the minority decision, and um, uh, the minority judge who, who found against you, all of the uh, justices of the full court of the federal court um, expressed some disquiet about the use of the cancellation power um, for these purposes, and it was quite, it was very striking that yep. that they they use that kind of normative language. Moore and Giles um, said, justices Moore and Giles said. In their very first line, this is yet another disturbing application of Section 501 of the Migration Act. The appellant has been entirely brought up in Australia. It is only happen chance that he was not born here. He is only an alien by the barest of threads. And that's in their first paragraph of their decision. Emmett J, who made the decision, he said, I share the disquiet expressed by their honours concerning the circumstances in which a man who has spent all of his life in Australia has no knowledge of the Swedish language, will be removed to Sweden and banished from Australia because of what must be characterised as an accident of history and an oversight on the part of his parents. And that's in the, you know, dissenting of decision. So clearly the court was saying this is a really poor use of public uh, decision-making by the minister at the time. The minister... Um uh, applied for special leave to appeal to the High Court. Had you um, anticipated that, that, that that would occur? Look, it was certainly on the cards. Um, you know, the as can be seen, quite strident criticism um, of what the Minister uh, had done by the Court led that to be a, a significant possibility. And it was really an untried and untested area of the law, as the, as the High Court decision itself says, um, there had been some conversation about what to do in these cancellation matters and what to do with various visa types, um, but it had never really been properly considered by the High Court. So this turned out to be a vehicle which the High Court could, could properly look at it. Um, so uh, look, while we were um, very happy with the court win, there was a dissenting decision clearly that led to there being a difference of opinion at the full court of the federal court. Um, so a high court challenge was on the cards at the outset, I would have said. And then off to Canberra we went. So we were fortunate in that it was the minister appealing. So we were actually given an indemnity on costs. So we went and enjoyed ourselves appropriately, um, obviously <laughs> on, on the public on the public purse, but, you know, that we didn't spare any expenses. We uh, brought in some more experienced um, at that time uh, assistance in the in the uh, Debbie Mortimer SC as she was then um, who acted for us instructed with, with uh, Lisa de Ferrari and myself and uh, the minister brought in an, uh, a Kavanagh QC again instructed by Stephen Donahue with Katie Miller on the other side and so we had our day in the court between four or five judges of the uh, of the High Court, including Gleeson, CJ, Gummo, Hayne, Hayden and Quenon, um, who we appeared before. And what was your experience of the hearing? Did you, did you have a sense that 
um, things were not going your way during the course yeah. of the hearing? We, I mean, it was a, even though it was the Minister's appeal, the positions that were having to be made was pretty much our responsibility. And um, Debbie Mortimer, in particular, was on her feet arguing on five points um, as to why the Minister's decision, the Minister's appeal should be dismissed. Um, a number of quite technical arguments about the nature of the type of cancellation it is, and clearly about the, the requirement for the Minister to properly turn her mind to the the criteria of each visa that was being cancelled. I think we, um, yeah. So they, I think we we dealt with the issue that he had both visas pretty quickly. I think that was that was pretty much agreed by both sides. Um, but then what then flowed from that, and what the minister should have turned her mind to was was part of that significant argument. And then a different argument is because he was you no know, the change of the law over time from section two hundred and one, section five hundred and one. There are different cancellation powers within the Act um, and how they operated. And so there's some technical argument about that. But you had the sense that um, at the end of all that, you had the sense that uh, perhaps um, the Minister had had the better of... We were the, the ones being argued. We were the ones being questioned. We were the ones being, being tested uh, about our position, um, certainly far stronger than what the, the Minister's position was. One of the striking things about the comparison between the full court's decision and the high court's decision is that the high court makes none of the sort of normative comment that the full court did. Was that something that you expected or did it come as a disappointment? What was your reaction to that? I, 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 think, I think that that's probably to be expected. You don't see too many normative comments um, by the high court. Um, I think Chief Justice Gleeson does make a few comments at the outset in his, seeing his very brief um, determination, uh, then subsequently supporting the, the, the other court judges' decisions. Um, no, I think the federal court was then known for being far more active in terms of its uh, position on what the, 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 the effect of law and why law should be there not making political statements or policy statements, but the way that the law actually impacts individuals. So the federal court's been far more um, willing to make comments on that on that stage. Um, the high court's been less willing to do so, although you've always got the great dissenter. Um, you've got um, current judges who are prepared to make some, some interesting decisions, I've noticed, um, but they're usually uh, outliers as opposed to the federal court. Stefan Nistrom's visa remained cancelled and he was removed from Australia. He was returned to Sweden. And from there, with his family's assistance and the assistance of the Human Rights Law Centre, he made a complaint to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. And it found that Australia had breached its international human rights obligations in removing Stefan Nistrom. One key fact in that uh, opinion from the Human Rights Committee was the fact that Stephen Istrom had in fact been in the state's care as a child. So the state had acted in uh, the parental role, had had responsibility for Stephen Istrom and had not taken steps to ensure that he had Australian citizenship. And so it was in part the conduct of the state, the state 
in right of Victoria in that instance rather than in right of the Commonwealth. But nonetheless, the state which was responsible for him not having citizenship and the state which later removed him as a non-citizen. The Human Rights Committee indicated, as I've said, that Australia acted in breach of its human rights, but Australia did not reverse that decision, and Stefan Istrom remained in Sweden. He then was in Sweden, and I know that his mother and his sister um, continued to pursue his matter, and yep. they, they went to the United Nations Human Rights yes. Committee. You, you ceased to have central involvement at that, that point. That's correct. Um, you know, ostensibly our responsibility now, and, and the opportunity for us to work in this area really is in the Australian jurisdiction. That's where our, our sort of expertise lies, and um, while certainly interested in, in the sort of the broader um, work. I don't think that we had the capacity to sort of take some matter to the um, the United Nations Human Rights Commission Committee. Um, however, Human Rights Law Centre and Ben Shockman, um, who was working there at the time, he was keen to take that on board. So we liaised with him, and we certainly gave him a lot of information about the circumstances and arguments and so forth, uh, so that they could actually take that to the Human Rights Commission at the UN. And the Human Rights Committee uh, then. Um it found um, in his favour and um, one of the really interesting facts <clears throat> when you read the Human Rights Committee decision is that um, they attach some significance to the fact that he had been in care during um, part of his life and so at one point um, it was the government or a government in Australia which had responsibility for mm. Stefan Istrom as a child um, and so it wasn't just the failure of his parents uh, yeah. to apply for citizenship on his behalf, but it was also a failure on the part of the state, mm. uh, the very state that later cancelled his visa and removed him. Utterly, utterly. It was an absolute failure on behalf of the state. Of course, it's the Victorian state that probably failed him um, at the time, not the federal government, um, but putting him in care, which you know, put an already challenged young man into um, an environment that he was you know, abused. Uh, and so it led to the... The thing is, and, and the, the Human Rights Committee's decision really does, he was Australia's, he was a result of his Australian experiences. Everything that ever happened to him, everything he ever did, apart from those first 27 days as a newborn, was part of his Australian experience, be it in care, in the criminal system, or in the migration system. All of it was Australian. He was Australia's problem, and we sent him away to a place where he had no connections, no known family that he had any awareness of. Uh, we sent him away and said, good luck. How uh, did his mother and sister cope during the course of the proceedings and, and have you any contact with them or with him since? No, I think the, there might have been a, a conversation with Brits around 2008. That was the last time I sort of had a conversation with her. They were, they were very stoic. Um, they were fantastic supporters for Stefan and you know they were required to put in um, you know, affidavits and materials and things like that which talked about their own personal circumstances and gave Stefan's background. Um, they were, you know, really strong and supportive 
and had had at that time been remained very supportive in their circumstances. Uh, knockabout young young Australians, really. His sister, you know, making a new life for herself. Was Australian citizen. His mother, trying to support Stefan as she could. Um, yeah, uh, they were very concerned about Stefan. That you know he would having their 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 biggest thing, apart from the fact that he would never be able to come back to Australia, was that he had turned his life around. And they gave a lot of information about how he had turned that life around, and yet the Australian government, after everything, had decided to say, you're no longer welcome. He's been back there for what would be about 12 years. Mm. No, I, I, I understood from, from, from speaking to Ben Shockman and people like that that he had he'd gone back to having challenges with alcohol, um, which he had beaten in Australia. Um, uh, Okay, in terms of where people have subsequently been cancelled and sent back to Sweden, it's perhaps a, a better place than others um, with the social support that can be accessed. But, you know, you ripped a man away from everything that he knew, um, a life that he had started to create. I spoke to Stuart Webb about some of the ongoing consequences of this case, both for the system and for him. He talked about the shift in the practice of the minister and the department in using cancellation powers almost exclusively and really never using deportation powers. And I talked to him about what the case has meant for him as he's gone on to have a career as a decision maker as well as a practitioner in the area of migration law. The shift from using deportation, which has some limitations in Correct. terms of how it can be applied to long-term Correct. residents, um, to cancellation, which doesn't have the same limitations. Deportation is really a thing of the past now. Now there's just visa cancellation yep. and removal. Um, what's your sense about the degree to which um, uh, there has been an increased appetite to cancel and remove over the years? I think, you know, the comments of the, the full court of the federal court really do describe the concerns about the use of this power at that time. I don't think that the um, cancellation powers under the Migration Act had really been used in a significant way at that time. It was quite new, it was quite novel. Um, and a case like Nistrum's and the, the way that it's been used as, as precedent subsequently has really, unfortunately, opened the door for far broader use of the cancellation power by, um, by delegates of the minister and, and more particularly the minister, him or herself. Subsequent to your work as a solicitor, you then moved into a role as a decision maker on the refugee Review and Migration Review Tribunal, yes. subsequently the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Um, and uh, so in that context, you were dealing with cases, not visa cancellation cases under Section 501, but dealing with cases of individuals um, caught up in the migration yep. system. Is doing this kind of casework, um, or was doing this kind of casework, influential in the way that you took up that role? Very much, very much. What it did is that it meant that, and at Legal Aid we did both application work at the time and also the judicial review. Um, so knowing what 
took place as part of an application to the department, subsequently to the Refugee Review Tribunal or, or Migration Review Tribunal, and seeing how all that information has been distilled and put together, particularly where someone's been represented, you can say so. You can be have a lot more confidence and and, and knowledge in the material and the time that's been taken to put a claim forward. And that made a big, big difference um, to those who are self-represented, who are sort of throwing things away in very sort of haphazard manner. Um, it really did help to be able to, to turn your mind to the personal, person's circumstances and, and apply the law appropriately to it so that they got their, their opportunity to put their case at its highest. Um, and then you properly consider that according to the facts, there's no de novo appeal that, that occurred, and then clearly um, make a decision as per law. This policy issue, uh, this question of the extent of the government's power to remove people from Australia, the breadth of that power, that continues to be a matter of some public contention. Uh, as I record this, there are two cases before the High Court involving Aboriginal people, two Aboriginal men who were born in Papua New Guinea, each with one Australian Aboriginal parent. In each case, they've spent most of their lives in Australia. Uh, and despite that, and despite the fact that they're recognised by all concerned as being Aboriginal people, uh, they've had their visas cancelled and they're facing removal. So it remains a, a very contentious area of law. The implications of Stephanie Nistrom's case and the broad power of the minister, uh, they are still very much live issues in Australia. I hope that it's been enlightening to hear a little about Stephanie Nistrom's case and uh, about Stuart Webb's journey in um, taking that case through to the High Court. Don't forget you can find past episodes on the website and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. I look forward to joining you on the next episode of In That Case. Mm-hmm.